welcome to My Favorite Theorem, a math podcast where we ask mathematicians to tell us about their favorite theorems. Uh, I'm Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer in Salt Lake City, Utah, and I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, Kevin. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm still Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics <laughs> at the University of Florida. How are things going? All right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, we just talked yeah, yesterday, so bad. I doubt much has mm -hmm. changed, right? Right. Except, except I seem to have injured myself between yesterday and today. I, I, I think it's a function of being not 50, but not able to say that for much longer. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it happens. It does. Yeah. Well, hopefully um, your podcasting muscles have not been injured. I just need a few fingers for that. All right. So we are very happy today to welcome Ursula Witcher to the show. Hi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Ursula. I am an associate editor at Mathematical Reviews, which if you've ever used MathSciNet to look up a paper or check your Erdős number or any of those exciting things, there are actually 16 associate editors like me checking all the math that gets posted on MathSciNet and trying to make sure that it makes sense. I got my PhD at the University of Washington in algebraic geometry. I did a postdoc in California and spent a while as a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and then moved here to Ann Arbor where it's a little bit warmer uh, to start a job <laughs> Ann Arbor being warmer is just <laughs> kind of a scary proposition. <laughs> it's barely even snowing. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Well, and yeah, you mentioned mathematical reviews. I Before you got this job, I was not aware that, you know, there were like full-time employees just of mathematical reviews. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it's a really cool operation. We actually go back um, to sometime in probably the 40s. I think that's uh, right, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it used to be a paper operation where you could sign up and subscribe to the journal. And at some point we moved entirely online. Uh, I'm old enough to remember in grad school when um, you could get the year's math reviews on a CD-ROM, mm -hmm. <laughs> but before 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 math signet was a thing, and you 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 know I remember pulling the old math reviews uh, uh, physical copies off the shelf to look up reviews. Um, so. We actually have in the basement um, this set of file cards that our founder, who came from Germany. Uh, around the Second World War, um, he had a collection of handwritten cards of all the potential reviewers and their possible interests, and we've still got that floating around, so there's a cool archival project. I, I'm ashamed to admit that I'm a lapsed reviewer. I, I used to review, and then I kind of got busy doing other mm -hmm. things, and, and the editors finally wised up and stopped sending me papers. So. <laughs> <laughs> I try to tell people to just be really picky and only accept the papers that you're really excited to read. I feel really terrible about this, so, so maybe... maybe <laughs> Maybe I should come back. I, 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 I owe an apology to you and the other editors. I'm sorry. Yeah, come back and then like just be really super, super picky and only take things that you are truly overjoyed to read. We don't mind. I, you know, I read apologies for my job for part of my day every day without <laughs> reviewing. Um, so I've become sort of a connoisseur of the apology letter. Sure. So is, uh, <laughs> is part of your position also that you have some sort of uh, visiting scholar deal at, at the University of Michigan? Is that that come with this? Yeah, that is. Okay. Um, so I get to hang out at the University of Michigan and go to math seminars and learn about all kinds of cool math and use the library card. I, I'm a really heavy user of my University of Michigan library card. So well, it's, it's, find a, out all yeah, kinds of are, it's, it's a great campus. Excellent. Yeah. And that's a great department. A lot of excellent people there. Yeah. So what is your favorite theorem or the favorite theorem you would like to talk about today? 
So I decided that I would talk about mirror theorems as a genre. Uh, okay. I don't know that I have a single favorite mirror theorem, although I might have a favorite mirror theorem of the past year or two. Uh, but as a kind of class of theorems, these are a weird thing because they run kind of backwards. Like typically there's this thing that happens where mathematicians are just hanging out and doing math because math is cool. And then at some point somebody comes along and is like, oh, I see a practical use for this. And maybe I can spin it off into biology or physics or engineering or what have you. Um, mirror theorems came the other way. They started uh, with a physical observation that there were two ways of uh, phrasing a, a theoretical physics idea about possible extra dimensions and string theory and gravity and all kinds of cool things. Um, and then that physical duality people chewed on and figured out how to turn it into precise mathematical statements. So there are lots of different precise mathematical statements encapsulating maybe something different about the way these physical theories were phrased, or maybe building then sort of chaining off of the mathematics and saying something that no longer directly relates to something you could state about a possible physical world, but that is still a, like a neat mathematical relationship you wouldn't have figured out without having the underlying physical intuition. Yeah, and so this is um, like the, the, I guess, general area is called mirror symmetry. And un when I first heard that phrase, I, I assumed it was something about like group theory that was looking at like, you know, more, I guess, tangible things that I would consider symmetric, like what it looks like when you look in a mirror. But that is not <laughs> what it is, I learned. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I can tell you why it's called mirror symmetry, although it's kind of a silly reason. Um, the first formulations of mirror symmetry, people were looking at these spaces called Calabi-Yau threefolds, um, which are... So there are three complex dimensions, six real dimensions. They could maybe be the extra dimensions of the universe if you're doing string theory. Um, and associated with a Calabia threefold, you have a bunch of numbers uh, that tell you about its, um, its topological information, sort of general stuff about what is the, this six-dimensional shape looking like. And you can arrange those numbers in a diamond that's called the Hodge diamond. Um, and then you can draw a little diagonal line through the Hodge diamond. And um, some of the mirror theorems predict that if I hand you one Calabia threefold with a certain Hodge diamond, there should be somewhere out there in the universe another Calabia threefold with another Hodge diamond. And if you flip across this diagonal axis, one of the Hodge diamonds should turn into the other Hodge diamond. So it okay. is a, there is a mirror relationship there, and there is like a really like simple reflection there. But it's like you have to do a whole bunch of topology, and you have to do a whole bunch of geometry, and you like convince yourself that Hodge diamonds are a thing. And then you have to somehow like once you've convinced yourself that Hodge diamonds are a thing, you also have to convince yourself that you can go out there and like find another space that has the right numbers in the and the diamond. So this is like the mirror is like the very simplest thing about this. And it's this whole elaborate journey um, yeah. to get to the mirror. OK, interesting. I didn't actually know that that uh, that was where the mirror came from. So, yeah. So can you tell us what these mirror theorems are here? 
Sure. Um, so, like, one version of it might be what I said, that, like, given a Calabio um, manifold, like, with this information, that it has a mirror. Um, or, so then this diamond of information is telling you something about the way that the space changes. Um, and there are different types of information that you could look at. You could look at uh, how it changes sort of algebraically, like if you wrote down an equation with some polynomials and you changed those um, coefficients on the polynomials just a little bit, like sort of how many different sorts of things, how many possible deformations of that sort could you have? That's one thing that you can measure using like one number in this diamond. Um, okay. And then you can also try to measure symplectic structure, which is related more to sort of physics-y information um, that happens over in a different part of the diamond. And so another um, type of mirror theorem, like a, you know, a maybe more precise type of mirror theorem, would say, okay, so these deformations measured by this Hodge number on this manifold are um, isomorphic in some sense to these other sorts of deformations measured by this other Hodge number on this other mirror manifold. Is there some trick for constructing these mirror manifolds if they exist? Yeah, um, there are. Um, there are sort of recipes in one of the games that people play with mirror symmetry is trying to figure out where the different recipes overlap when you've like really found a new mirror construction and when you've found just like another way of looking at an old mirror construction. If I hand you one um, manifold, does it only have a unique mirror? Does it have multiple mirrors? So my advisor tried to teach me Hodge theory once mm -hmm. um, and and I can't even remember exactly what goes on except there's some sort of bigrading in the cohomology right is right that, is, and that, is that where this diamond shows up yeah exactly um so like you think back to um when you first learned complex analysis and there was like the ddz um mm -hmm. direction and there was the ddz barb direction right um and we're working in a setting uh, where we can break up the cohomology really nicely and say, okay, these are the parts of my cohomology that come from like a certain number of like holomorphic, like DDZ kind of things. Mm -hmm, and these yeah. are the other pieces of cohomology that can be decomposed and look like um, DZ bar. And since it's a Kähler manifold, everything fits together in a nice way. Right. Okay. There. That was, that. that's all I needed to know, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. You summarized it. You're done. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I have a question. When you talk about like mirror theorems, uh, I, I feel like some amount of mirror symmetry stuff is still conjectural, or I feel like I've my brief perusal of Wikipedia on this topic <laughs> indicates that there are some conjectures involved. Um, and so how how much of these theorems are like the like in different settings these mirror relationships hold and how much of them are like a you know small steps in this one big conjectural picture does that question make sense yeah um so i feel like we know a ton of stuff about um Calabi-Yau threefolds that are realized in sort of like the nice natural ways that physicists first started writing down things about Calabi-Yau threefolds. Um, 
When you start getting more general on the mathematical side, for instance, there's a whole um, flavor of mirror symmetry that's called homological mirror symmetry that talks about derived categories and the Fukaya category. Um, a lot of that stuff has been very conjectural and is at the point where people are starting to write down specific theorems about specific classes of examples. And so that's like maybe one of the most exciting parts of mirror symmetry right now. Um, and then there are also um, generalizations to broader classes of spaces where it's not just Calabia threefolds, where maybe you're allowing more general kind of variety or relaxing things, or you're starting to look at what if we went back to the physics language about potentials instead of talking about actual geometric spaces? Um, those uh, start having more conjectural flavor. Okay, so a lot of this is in like the original thing, but then there are different kind of settings where mirror symmetry might be taking place. Yeah. Okay, and um, I assume if, if you're such a connoisseur of mirror theorems that this is related to your research, also, um, what, what kinds of questions are you looking at in mirror symmetry? Yeah, um, so I spend some time just playing around with different mirror constructions and seeing if I can match them up, which is always a fun game, trying to see what you know. Uh, lately, what I've been really excited about is taking the sort of classical old-fashioned hands-on mirror constructions where like, you know, I can hand you a space and I can take another space and I can say these two things are mirror manifolds. And then seeing what knowing that tells me maybe about number theory, uh, about maybe doing something over finite fields or in a setting that like is less obviously kind of geometry, but where maybe you can still exploit this idea that you have all of this extra structure that you know about because of the mirror and start trying to prove theorems that way. Oh, wow. I did not know there was this connection to number theory. This is like a whole new tunnel uh, <laughs> coming out here. Yeah, no, it's super awesome. We were able to like make predictions about zeta functions of like K3 surfaces. And in fact, like we have a theorem about a factor of a zeta function for Calabia manifolds of any dimensions. Like, and it's a very specific kind of Calabia manifold, but like it's so hard to prove anything about zeta functions. Um, in part, because if you're a connoisseur of zeta functions, you know, they are con controlled by the size of the cohomology. So once your cohomology starts getting really big, it's, you know, really difficult to compute anything directly. So like how tangible are these, like, here is a manifold and here is its mirror? Uh, you know, like, are, they, are there some manifolds that you can really write down and, and like, have a visual picture in your mind of what these things actually look like? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm going to tell you about two mirror constructions. Um, I think one of these is maybe like more friendly to someone who likes geometry. And one of these is more friendly to someone who likes linear algebra. Okay. Um, so the oldest, oldest uh, mirror symmetry construction was um, it's due to Green and Plesser, who were physicists. Um, and they knew that they were looking for things with certain symmetries. Um, so they took uh, the diagonal quintic in projective um, four space. I have to get to my dimensions right, because I actually often think about four dimensions instead of six. Um, uh, so you're taking x to the fifth plus y to the fifth plus z to the fifth 
Um, plus then V to the fifth and W to the fifth because we ran out of letters and we had to mm-hmm. um, <laughs> um, go back. Yeah. Um, and you say, okay, well, these are complex numbers. I could multiply any of them by a fifth root of unity and I would have preserved my total space, right? Um, except we're working in projective space, so I have to throw away one of my, like, overall fifth roots of unity, some, um, because if I multiply by the same fifth root of unity on every coordinate, that doesn't do anything. Um, and then um, they wanted to maybe fit this into a family where they deformed by, like, the product of all the variables. Um, and if you want to have symmetries of that entire family, you should also um, make sure that the product of all of your... Um, fifth roots of unity, um, I, I think, multiplies to one. Um, so anyway, you throw out a couple of fifth roots of unity because you have these other symmetries that from your ambient space and the things that you're interested in, and you end up with basically three fifth roots of unity um, that you can multiply by. Um, so I've got x to the fifth plus y to the fifth plus z to the fifth uh, plus v to the fifth plus w to the fifth. And I'm modding out by um, z mod 5z cubed. Um, okay. I, right. So I'm, I'm like identifying all of these points in this space, right? I've just like got like 125 different things and I'm like shoving all these 125 different things together. Um, so when I do that, this space like which was all like nice and smooth and friendly and like it's named after Fermat because like, you know, Fermat was interested in equations like that. Um, all of a sudden I've made it like really like stuck together and messy and singular. Okay. Right. Um, so I go in as a geometer and I uh, start blowing up, which is what algebraic geometers call this process of going in with your straw and your balloon and blowing and smoothing out and making everything all nice and shiny again. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and when you do that, you've got a new space and that's your mirror. OK. So you blow up all the singularities. Yeah. You okay. resolve the singularities. That's a lot. Yeah. Um, so what you had um, was you had something which is floating around in P4. And because we picked a special example, it happens to have a lot of algebraic classes. But like a thing in P4, the only thing, like algebraic piece you really know about it in it is like intersecting with a hyperplane. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has like lots and lots of different ways you can vary all of its different complex parameters on like only this one algebraic piece that you know about. And then when you go through this procedure, you end up with something which has very few um, algebraic ways to modify it. It actually naturally has only a one parameter algebraic deformation space. Um, but then there are all of these cool new like classes that you know about because you just blew up all of these things. So you're trading around the different types of information you have. You go from lots of deformations on one side to very few deformations on the other. Okay, so that was the geometry. What's the linear algebra one? Okay, so the linear algebra one is so much fun. Um, let's go back to that same. Space. I wish our listeners could see like how big your That's smile right. is this, right now. This really is remarkable. <laughs> it yeah. is re- truly amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we've got this polynomial, right? X to the fifth plus y to the fifth plus z to the fifth plus w to the fifth. Um, and v to the fifth. Um, 
And that thing I was telling you about finding the different like fifth roots of unity that we could raise things to, that's like a super tedious algebraic process, right? Where you just sit down and you're like, gosh, I can raise different like parts of the variables, like fifth roots of unity. And then like I throw away some of my fifth roots of unity. Um, so you start with that, the equation and um, this sort of like little algebraic crank that you run to get a group associated with it. And then you convert your polynomial equation to a matrix. In this case, my matrix is just gonna be like all fives down the diagonal. Okay. Um, but you can do this more generally with other types of polynomials. Um, the ones that work well for this procedure have all kinds of fancy names like loops and chains and Fermat's. So like Fermat's is just the like different pure powers of the variables. Loops would be if I did something like x to the fifth plus y to the fifth plus z to the fifth and then I like looped back around and used an x again. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or like, sorry, it should have been like x to the fourth y and then y to the fourth z and so on. So you can really see the looping like about to happen. Um, and then chains are a similar thing, only you don't look back. Okay. Anyway, um, so given one of these things, you can just like read off the powers on your polynomial and you can stick each one of those into a matrix. And then to get your mirror, you transpose the matrix. Oh, of okay. course. <laughs> and then you run this little crank um, to tell you about an associated group. Okay. Um, so getting like which group goes with your transpose matrix is kind of a little bit more work. But like, I love the fact that you have this like huge complicated physics thing with all this stuff about the Hodge diamond. And then you're like, oh, and now we transpose a matrix. Mm -hmm. And you know yeah. that it's like a really great duality, right? Because if you transpose the matrix again, you get back where you started. Sure. Right. Yeah. Well, and it seems like so many questions in math are, how can we make this question into linear algebra? Uh -huh. uh, it's just like one of the biggest hammers mathematicians have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So another part of this podcast is that we ask our guest to pair their theorem, or in your case, you know, set of theorems or flavor of theorems with something. So what have you chosen as your pairing? I decided that we should pair the mirror theorems with really fancy Raman. Okay. okay. Yeah. So yeah, tell me why. Okay. Um, so really fancy ramen, like, you know, the good Japanese style where it's like you've simmered the broth down for hours and hours and it's incredibly complex. Not the kind that you just go buy at a packet, although that also has yeah. its like... No top ramen. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, all right. Um, so it's complex. It has like a million different variants, right? Like you can get it with miso. You can get it spicy. You can like put different things in it. You can decide whether you want an egg in it that's a little bit melty or not. Like all of these like different little choices that you get. Um, and yet like it seems like it's this really simple thing. It's just like noodle soup and we all know what top ramen is. Um, but yeah. there's so much more to it. Um, the other reason is that I just like personally, historically associate fancy ramen with mirror theorems because there was a special semester at the Fields Institute in Toronto. And Toronto has a bunch of amazing ramen. Mm. So yeah. a lot of the people who were there for that special semester grew to associate the whole thing with fancy ramen to the point where um, <laughs> one of my friends who's an Italian mathematician, we were like, like some other place in Canada, I think it was Ottawa. And she was like, well, why don't we just get ramen for lunch? And I was like, sorry, it turns out that like Canada is not like a uniform, just like source of amazing ramen that was special to Toronto. 
Yeah. Right. Otto was more about the poutine, I think. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's great stuff in Ottawa. It just like didn't have this beautiful ramen mirror symmetry pairing that we had all grown to love. <laughs> <laughs> right. I really like this pairing. It works on multiple levels. Sure. It's it's personal, but it also works you know, conceptually. It's uh, it's really good. Yeah. Well, uh, so how long have you been at Math Reviews? Uh, I think I'm in my third year. Okay. Do you enjoy it? I do. It's it, a lot of fun. Is it a permanent gig or is this are these things time limited? Uh, yeah, it's permanent. And in fact, we are hiring a number theorist. So if you know any number theorists out there who are really interested in, you know, precise editing of mathematics and writing about mathematics and cool stuff like that, tell them to look at our ad on math jobs. We're also hiring an analysis in math physics. And we've been hiring in combinatorics as well, although that was a faster hiring process. Yeah. And we also like to, um, you know, plug things that you're doing. I know in addition to math, uh, you have many other creative outlets, uh, including some poetry, right, related to math? That's right. Uh, where can people find that? Uh, well, you can look at my website. Um, let's see. If you want the poetry, you should look at my personal website, which is yarntheory.net. Um, okay. I, there's one poem that was just up recently on Joanne Grownie's blog. And yeah, that's a, right. Yeah. And I have a poem that's coming out soon, soon. I'm not sure how soon in Journal of Humanistic Math. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a really goofy thing where I made up some form involving like the group of units, um, like for the multiplicative group associated to the field of seven elements. And then like, around with that so yeah i'm really really looking forward to getting into that and do you have a little bit of, of explanation of the mathematical structure in there uh just the very smallest i mean i think what i did was i listed like i you know i found the generators of this group and then i um like listed out where they would go as you generated them and then i looked for the ones that like seemed like they were repeating in an order that would make a cool poem structure. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, thanks a lot for joining us. We'll be sure to share all that, and hopefully people can find some of your work and enjoy it. Cool. Thanks, Ursula. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bao Chan Wen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at NivikNazdunk, that's Kevin spelled backwards followed by Knudsen spelled backwards, and Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.